people living in the margins or people who are trying to be seen and people who are trying to create community, to me is just more interesting than someone for whom everything's easy. Hello, and welcome to On Assignment, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of award-winning journalism here at Columbia Journalism School. My name is Abby Wright. I run the prizes program here, and I'm joined, as always, by my colleague, Lisa R. Cohen, director of the DuPont Columbia Awards. Hello, Lisa. Hi, Abby. So today, we're going to hear the latest installment in a series of conversations with DuPont-winning filmmakers on the podcast. Yes, we recently played host to filmmaker Alexandra Shiva. You just heard a clip of her. She was talking about the kind of work that she's just naturally drawn to, and that's stories about people who are often on the outside looking in, who are facing tough times, and then following them to see what happens as they take on the challenge. And these are also the kinds of stories that, combined with deep original reporting in the public interest, are what a DuPont jury looks for, among other things. Yes, so if you have reporting that fits this description, whether it's investigative, local enterprise reporting, in podcast documentaries, or online interactive, as long as it's audio-visual reporting, now is the time to enter it for next year's awards. Because, drumroll please, we are open for entries for the 2020 DuPont Awards, starting May 1 and for the next two months until our deadline of July 1st. And we'll mention it again at the end of the podcast, but you can go to www.dupont.org at any time to get more information, to get a link to our very comprehensive FAQ, and to get a link to enter. That's right. In the meantime, to inspire you, as we said, 2019 winner Alexandra Shiva was at the J School recently, part of our doc film series, Film Fridays, with her award-winning film, This Is Home, which aired on Epics. And what is Epics, Abby? That's a good question, Lisa. This is the first DuPont win for Epics, which is a relatively new cable network, about 10 years old, that's getting invested in quality documentaries, which is a good development for us since we honor journalistic documentaries here at DuPont. So a few background notes before we bring you the conversation that Alexandra had with Professor Betsy West, just so that you'll be able to understand some of the references. This is Home is the story of four Syrian refugee families who arrived in Baltimore with the support of the International Rescue Committee. You'll hear it referred to as the IRC. One of the case workers from the IRC is Salson. She's a former refugee herself, so that really helps in getting the families acclimated. And you're going to hear her name in the conversation. Uh, it's just an incredible program. So each family gets eight months support from the IRC. It's both money, but it's also a lot of other support before the funding runs out. So the clock is ticking, and that's a great vehicle for a documentary. They have this eight months to be out on their own. The film follows them throughout in a verite style that's really intimate, despite profound language differences, which you really almost stop noticing as you watch the film that most of the audio isn't in English. That's right. In fact, we wanted to play a clip in this podcast to introduce you to one of the subjects, a man named Khaldun, and we completely forgot that we could only play the, the bits in English, which he doesn't speak. Um, he's a great character. He's a little bit cranky. He's also funny. And in parts, he's incredibly moving. There's a moment that Betsy and Alexander talk about where she asks Khaldun what he misses about his homeland of Syria. And he's just so eloquent. It's, it's almost poetic. And it really, it moved me to tears. So now let's get to it. An edited version of the conversation between Professor Betsy West and This Is Home director, Alexandra Shiva. 
So tell us the, the origin story. Why Baltimore? How this film happened? You know. Um, the film was actually, it was brought to me by one of the executive producers. So um, Princess Virial of Jordan, who does a lot with refugee resettlement and she's part of IRC, she said, I want, I want you to make a movie that has a similar tone to How to Dance in Ohio, but for refugees. And I understood what she meant by that because there was a way in which How to Dance in Ohio, my previous film, which was about um, young adults with autism who go to a prom in Columbus, Ohio, invites the audience to just be with the people that they're with instead of looking at them or assessing them, just to be in intimate moments and the drama of everyday life and, and what does it mean to hopefully create that experience for an audience. So I understood I was very much on board and excited. We then talked to IRC and I explained that it was very important that it was independent from them. and From IRC. From IRC. That it really could never be for a project for them. And they understood and, and then they sort of told me a bunch of different offices that that they suggested and one of them was Baltimore and I loved the Baltimore office for so many reasons but it's a really interesting city. I think, you know, for people to be sort of thrust into Baltimore not having chosen Baltimore is also interesting. And what about the other way in terms of control of the princess? I mean, how much how much control did she have over this and how did Nothing. that work? She's, I mean, she, she had two notes. One note was that she thought there was a scene in which Batul and her mother are in the kitchen and they have a lot of spices and she found it annoying. And then she, there was one word she didn't like. And that's it. I mean, we also the agreement with her was that it, she didn't have creative control. It was her idea, but she was really giving me the yeah room. So you pick Baltimore after scouting these places. I mean, what was your? Uh, how soon did you begin filming? I mean, did you start right away the eight month clock that starts, or right. did you sort of know that was going to be your structure and you were waiting to start eight months? with a new group or uh, no no we didn't we went down originally the film was not actually going to be only about syrian refugees so that was a big shift in the process we went down we we went to a lot of cult cultural orientation sessions um, we spent about a week or two just you know not filming but observing and getting to know the people in the office and um and then we started to film and do interviews we realized that we actually and then we started we met Khaldun and Yasmin and I realized that it was hard enough to tell a story that had a, that had diverse voices within one culture you know who comes from homes and what's it like to be from Aleppo and what does it mean from Damascus and different you know work ethics and different it, it was too much so we decided to focus on the Syrian population yeah. and did you follow more families than this these families or did you zero in on them or you know we zeroed in on them and we the process we embedded at the IRC at the at the International Rescue Committee in um, Baltimore and we really you Sousen was an incredible source of um, guidance for us and Sousen, Sousen the, is the caseworker, the caseworker who, yes, who's yeah. a former refugee herself yeah. and that's one of the reasons we actually loved the Baltimore office was that they a third of the office were refugees that had become caseworkers so it was a, it had a wonderful vibe um, in a lot of ways and other ways not but we we met everyone sort of in the beginning, you know, Khaldun we met the day after he arrived. The girls, um, Batul and Maria, we met, I think they'd been there a month, and that was not easy to sort of work our way 
into their lives. Um, they were very hesitant. Um, and Medea, we actually met right away, and she said no. And then she circled back to us and said, you know, I actually want to tell my story. Will you come uh -huh. and film with me? And what, what was the biggest challenge? I mean, was it language? Was it access? Was it, I mean, what was? Um, I would say it was language and cultural differences. So I think there was a lot of, um, what I didn't quite realize in the beginning was that Syrian, that in, in long form documentary is not a thing in Syria. It just, it's very, very unusual. So everyone said yes, sure, to an interview, but they didn't realize that we meant we were gonna follow them for a year, right? Because we followed them even past the eight months. So, you know, every week it was like, hi, we're here. And so it took, it took quite a lot of relationship building to also explain, you know what, when something's happening for you, even if it's just a job interview, call me and I'll bring the crew down, right? If you're having a job interview. You're not living in Baltimore. I wasn't living in Baltimore, which for How to Dance in Ohio, I was living in Columbus. Mm -hmm. And I, we, had, we moved a crew there and it was actually much easier. We tried to do, we thought Baltimore's closer and it was gonna work. I found it tough because, you know, it, you know, someone would say, well, I do have something, it's in two hours. And that did not work. But, um, but it took a very long time to have the subjects get on board with us in that way where they were really partnering. I mean, especially for Iman and the girls, that relationship, they were the most, um, the most, I wouldn't, traumatized in a way and untrusting. So they were really hesitant. And so sometimes I would just go down to, um, to have dinner with Iman mm -hmm. and the girls. As you said, this is a, it's a personal story in the middle of a very political issue right right now. I mean, what was your approach to that? Are you really trying to keep your eye on the personal? And then, of course, the travel ban happens right. in the middle of right. it. Which um, I, I felt very strongly even before, I mean, we started filming in May of 2016. And even then, I felt that it was really important to tell the story and, and get out of our own way, right? Just to not, to, to politicize it, it's almost enabling people to shut down. And we didn't want to give anyone room to shut down. And so it, yeah, What do you mean by that? I mean that if you, if we had a lot of people talking about how wrong yeah. the policies are, how terrible what's happening is, then, then it gives people who don't necessarily want to connect with who they're seeing, who don't understand this this different culture, who are sort of otherizing, to use that term, which is not quite a word, but yeah. that it's it's it gives them the license to do that, I felt, in this way. And it was really important to just get inside their experience and to tell an intimate, quiet story. And by the time the travel ban, there was no way we weren't gonna address it. But by the time you get there, I hope you're seeing it from their perspective. And it's not from the outside in, it's from the inside out. And I think we're not speaking for all Syrian refugees. We're speaking for this particular group of people. And so it was, there's a danger if it becomes too political that we're trying to say, this, these people stand for everyone. They don't, they stand for themselves. You told me that you were editing the same time you were shooting, and that yes. that was a yes. challenge. Can you talk about you know why did you do it that way, and what was what was what was hard, what was better? So we went to Catalyst with the film, which is a Sundance program to raise money, and it became very clear that the trajectory needed to be quite quick. And because of that, we were filming, and then we brought in our editor, and we started. So there was about six months overlap in the filming and the editing. I found it, um, I, I need a little distance 
when I'm when I'm editing. I need to have the experience have happened and then s sort of separate from the subjects. I was still texting and communicating with the subjects almost every day while editing, and it made it just made it hard. I, I I'm not exactly sure that I could ever do that again with this kind of film. Um, there were just there were so um, I I felt an intense responsibility to the subjects, which I was always going to feel in the edit, but there's a way in which you have to pull away to tell the story, and the story becomes its own thing that it doesn't give room for, for me. I mean, they all come off as, as real, you know? I mean, they have their flaws. How did you balance that? Because, you know, people aren't perfect, and, right. you know, you're, you're witnessing people in a time of incredible stress. I Absolutely. mean, oh my goodness, yes. like I can't even imagine what it is like. How, how did you balance how you portrayed that? Because I'm sure that you saw even more <laughs> flaws than those that you shared in the edit. Uh, there was a lot of discussion in the edit, especially for the men. There's a, there's a tremendous dignity preservation piece that happens, and I think that um, you know, Khaldun, it does not always come off well, and he can be difficult, and he is aware of that. It was very important to me that he's a full person, right? He's not, it's, he's not always grateful for everything. There's, there's a way in which if you, if you just scratch the surface, what you get is like, I'm just so happy to be in this country. It's like, well, yes, but let's show you as a, what's challenging for you and, and what's real. Um, I mean, that soundbite of him going on about Syria and mm. that was <laughs> did you expect that I mean no. he just yeah. no like that's amazing when he just pours out his heart about what he misses it's extraordinary that was extraordinary and I've I've never done an interview where I don't actually understand the words but I understand the content and you know the the interpreter was literally behind me but I didn't I mean I needed to understand what he was actually saying to continue but I felt coming from his delivery and his eyes and the emotional content. It was a very intense interview. So you waited for him to finish talking, then the interpreter told you more or less what he had said. Exactly. Yeah. So I would just I would just look into his eyes and listen. And sometimes the interpreter would jump on him and I would be like, mm -mm -mm. like yeah. don't speak at the same time. Um, and that's also something, one of the things that was challenging that I learned was that in the very beginning we had interpreters from different parts of the Arabic world and I learned that you that doesn't work we needed a Syrian dialect interpreter because, you know, it just, anything that could get in the way of the intimacy was going to get in the way of the intimacy. So, and you didn't want a simultaneous interpreter who was going to be stepping on the person. Like, no, they needed no. to say what they were going to say and then you listen right. and... And sometimes when we were when we were filming Verite, what we would do is, I would sit like at Medea's house, especially in that scene where she's talking to her friend who is actually Iraqi, the 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 one who they're talking about the neighbor, and I um I was sitting on the stairs around the back with an interpreter, and she a Syrian dialect, and she would You're listening. Yeah. No, no, we were li we were just we could hear. Yeah. We were just hiding behind the stairs, and so every once in a while she'd whisper to me, "Oh, they just said this," or they were just talking about this, and there was one moment where I sort of popped my head up and I was like, wait, could you talk more about that? <laughs> like, 
Was that when they were talking about men? Or I love their stuff so about funny. bring me the men. Or I know I want to I want to steal your husband. I, I mean, know. <laughs> well, there's so, you know one of the things I found that I that I thought was so important, and, and our editor Toby Shimon is a master, and we agree on this, and really it was very important to use humor and so wherever possible it's such a connecting force and it is a sign of resilience and survival and they had so much humor about so many things and and we just you know we went in So you said that uh, there were good things and bad things about the Baltimore office. I'm very curious. I mean, the little we do see of the office, they seem to be pretty, you know, unhelpful. They seem to like, they sit the people down these first time in America, they're talking about their first job, and then they basically say, okay, what are you going to do? No, you're not going to do that. Get out of here. Your interview's over. And, and th there's just several scenes that you show where there's a certain amount of insensitivity. What are the, some of the difficulties in the challenges that they encounter and how do you deal with that when you're doing a film that you don't want to, you know, stack the deck? I think that they, these are the people who want to be helping. Everyone's heart is in the right place. Um, and some of the people, that scene, that particular scene between Khaldun, Muhammad and Khaldun, um, talking to the two young IRC workers, it's, it can be read a lot of ways, but it is, it is definitely a culture clash. So you were supposed to go to work on Monday, correct? But you didn't go. Can I speak? Not yet. Did you or did you not go to work on Monday? No, no, no. Okay. okay. That is your choice. However, there's a consequence for that. I don't know then what you should have done is come here yesterday and ask for me, ask for Rebecca, and explain to us that the ride you had arranged was unable to take you. Instead, you made a personal choice to just not go and not tell anybody. And that's the problem we have. So the first punishment is verbal. This is your verbal warning. The second warning, will be that your money will be withheld. And that's what we're trying to explain to you. If you want IRC to help you, and you agree to the job offered, you have to go. And if you don't want the job, you need to be honest with your employment specialist and say, I don't want this job. I want to It is what happens when people who really want to help have a very limited amount of time, and they don't actually, it is a massive cultural difference and they, they know that they only have a certain number of months to get these people ready to be on their own, and it's, it's, it's complicated. <laughs> Do you think that the Baltimore office is typical of other, I mean, how many, uh, does the IRC have these offices all over the they country? They have offices all over the country, and they're all different. I think they're really different. Um, I also think that the reason for the eight months of core service funding is is because that's how much money they get. If they, if they got more money, they would give more services. And they do have extended, there's, you know, there's all sorts of like, it was too wonky to include, but like, you know, if you need extended services or you have medical conditions, you can come back and you can apply for different kinds of things. And it's not like they actually fall off a cliff, but they are told the entire time, you have eight months, you have eight months to get it together. And, and so that pressure exists for them. And that's why it's really important as the structure for the film. But I think it says a lot about that office that 
Sousen and her other senior caseworker, Abdi, who Abdi was Sousen's caseworker. So Abdi was her caseworker 10 years before, and he's also a refugee. And I think it says a lot that they were in charge, but it, it, you know, it's also it's young American people who don't necessarily understand, um, and there's only so much training. You, you learn on the job, so. Could you talk a little more about uh, all the film that you collected and how, uh, a little more about the game plan of how you whittled through all the material and kind of crafted it the way you did? Um, so we had 250 hours of footage. And the first thing we did was we translated everything that was not in English, which was 225 hours of footage. So we, we translated everything, and we, we really mined for the sort of asides, the, the, the quiet private moments, the things that were more subtle that were not as um, overt. We really started to think about, you know, w in terms of the arcs for each of these characters and subjects what happens for them like where do they end up and you know what is Yasmin's challenge what is Khaldun's challenge where do they end up I just wanted to know um, has this been on television what is its trajectory where has it been where is it going has anyone in a political position seen it and can they see it well what's really interesting is that the few people that I've shown it to who I know are right-leaning who have seen it and then talked to me about it don't feel that the film is political which is exactly what I like to hear that's great yes yeah, right. so what we did was the film's on Amazon Hulu it aired on Epics and now it's on Amazon and Hulu as well um, we also partnered with um, we raised about $150,000 to do an impact campaign and we partnered with Picture Motion, who you know go all over the country and do a lot of very interesting screenings. So they'll go into communities and they'll find a refugee chef and they'll create a, an event around that or they'll go, and we it was incredible. And I think the pre-broadcast, I think there were about 25 sort of big events that they did all over the country. And then I think we had 50 screenings that were in community centers in- When was this? This was all fall. This whole fall. This and we actually, someone gave us a grant just to um, put the film in Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Michigan. I mean, do you feel some, do you feel it gets through to people? I mean, I do. You know, I or do. do you feel like it, the, you know, talks to the, preaches to the choir? I, I do think, I mean, it was interesting to talk to these very right leaning people and have them say, this, I didn't think this was political, it's a human story. And I was like, Great, great. Can we go further with that? Um, how do we go further with that? Obviously, most of the people who are drawn to it, it's preaching to the choir. Um, I do think that a lot of the screenings were geared toward communities that may not necessarily know that they, we, we got a lot of feedback from those screenings. So people said, I, I've never met a refugee. I didn't realize what they go through. So things like that, feedback from different screenings around the country. So I, I hope that it, you know, even if it moves the needle like this much. <laughs> and you have another project that's related. Two other yeah. weirdly, yeah. I have okay. two other projects that are, that, that have a, a refugee tone to them one is more overt and then the other one is sort of backstory in someone's life but but yeah more more to come more more to come on that yeah hi there hi. i'm a documentary student and i wanted to know um you have an ensemble cast and so i'm wondering if you ever considered just following one family and what were the pros and cons that you kind of tried to evaluate in making that decision of sticking with one family through their journey versus following multiple families Following multiple families is so hard. 
on so many levels. But I felt that it was really important because if you only follow one family in a movie that's this length, it just, I don't know, it just feels like there isn't enough variety of experience. You know, there isn't enough variety of, I mean, economic issues are different. I mean, to me, having Iman and the girls in the movie was very important and having people from different places in in Syria, um, I don't know, I just, I never, I, 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 I sort of always wanted it to be ensemble. It could have had maybe three, not four. It was a lot. It's a lot of people to meet and with a lot of children, so it's complex. And they all brought different things to the table, so it was hard to, it, w- it would have been hard to choose and say, who's the one family we wanna do, you know, we wanna film. It seems like a lot of your films have been about outsiders, <laughs> right? I mean, yes. the eunuchs in Bombay, autistic kids in Ohio, these fam- I mean, is that deliberate or did, have, did that just happen or? I think, it, I mean, I think it's deliberate. I, didn't, I don't think I quite understood it until I was making How to Dance in Ohio, but I, I, I think there's something, the human experience of the struggle and of people living in the margins or people who are trying to be seen and people who are trying to create community, to me is just more interesting than someone for whom everything's easy, you know? And I think there's there's so much resilience that I see in the communities that I've been lucky enough to embed in, I guess. <laughs> Weird word. <laughs> Witness. Witness, I don't know. yeah. <laughs> Something. Get involved with? Yeah. <laughs> I'm curious about the translation process because I do a lot of Arabic English translation work. At what point did you notice that like using translators from different dialects because that's a that's definitely very real the dialects there's huge, huge. variation. Yes. Um, when did you switch over to, to Syrian dialect interpreters? And then once you had all the material and you said you, the first thing you did was translate everything, mm-hmm. how many tr- different translators were working on that? What was that process like? We, we realized pretty soon in the process, there was a moment where we had, we had an Iraqi interpreter and she was very interested in talking to me about how differently the Syrian women behave while we were in the house. And I was like, we're having a turf war here and this is not gonna work. But she, did, she disapproved of yes, their behavior? Yes, yes, It was even like a, that, she, that she didn't like the way that they wore their hijabs and it was too high and it was too glamorous. I was like, okay, we're not doing this. We, this doesn't work. And so I found this wonderful Syrian uh, dialect interpreter who was from Aleppo and she was a cultural interpreter too, which was wonderful. And then we ended up finding this incredible, incredible man who was getting his PhD in comparative Arabic literature and he happens to be Lebanese, but he his grandparents were Syrian, his cousins are Syrian, and he was amazing. So he did everything and he would, I would say, you know, so does he really say over my dead body? And he would send me back a dissertation that was like, well, in 1912, when King Faisal said blah, 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 and then blah, 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 and then blah, blah, blah. And so yes, and then in the 50s, and so yes, now it's an idiom that you can translate as. And I was like, thank you. <laughs> but I loved that. So, you know, and he was even there for the, was, this was really interesting. He was there for the, um, the sound mix. And we had a moment where one of the subjects you couldn't hear it, it was wild sound, and you didn't hear it until the fifth day of the sound mix. So, because the speakers were so good, and no one had heard it, he'd never heard it, and he said something that was negative about Trump. And I was like, oh no, 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 we gotta get that out. Like, that's not good for him, right? So we got it out, but it was, you know, complex. 
did you show the film to oh, yes, them? Yeah. I mean, but beforehand, or did you do it in a audience screening? We did. Well, we actually took it. We when we got into Sundance, we immediately took it down to Baltimore, and we um, showed it. We actually had. We could not figure out how to get the Arabic subtitles with the lower thirds and the English subtitles all on one. So we actually took over two different screening rooms in a movie theater and brought everyone who was in the movie and said, okay, if your first language is English, go to the left. If your first language is Arabic, go to the right. And that was it. And that's how they watched the film. And I sat in the Arabic screening. And it was really amazing because, you know, Sousen didn't like some of the Arabic subtitles and gave me notes. And then most of the kids were laughing and um, and really engaged with how they were on screen. So we had I had shown it actually to Iman and the girls here in New York because they were in New York and I showed it to them separately and then having them watch it like they sobbed the entire time it was really and her husband came to it, it was really very intense to watch it with them and um, and then Khaldun couldn't come to that screening because he was working so he saw it at Sundance mm-hmm. wow yes yeah yeah and that was amazing. So we, we got a grant, an incredible grant, to bring three of the four families were able to come, but we were able to bring them to Sundance, and it was really amazing. And these three incredible Park City families just put them up, took care of them, fed them, took them sledding. It was great. It was amazing. <laughs> they had the best time. And and no no objections from anybody to no, anything? No, no. No one came up to you and said, oh, I don't like it when I, you know, I mean... He didn't object with any of his remarks about women and not working no. and because nope. Know. Nope. He actually said he actually said um, that he felt human. Huh. Which was very yeah. meaningful to me. You know, these stories are so moving. Just update us on what's happened with these people because you were telling me a little bit about that. So, um Medea actually just did her fourth event at the church and it was on Facebook. It was last weekend and it was on Facebook and I saw and I knew that Batul was going, but I saw that Batul spoke. Iman was there, Aya was there, which I just love. So Medea's doing really well. She uh, Leah moved her into her neighborhood. So now the kids are at school with Leah's kids. They're very very close and they're doing really well. The kids are speaking fluent English. In fact, they're worried that the youngest doesn't isn't going to be able to retain Arabic, um, and he only eats pizza, so they're not happy about it. Um, but uh, but they're doing very well. And then Khaldun and Yasmin. Khaldun is great. He's um, he's he got his special kind of license for trucking, which was complicated, and he had to be able to do a written test. And he got that, and now he's able to um, to do long you know long long haul trucking. Long Thank haul. you. Um, long haul. And uh, and he's making a lot more money. And Yasmin is still working. And then Muhammad, who we never see his wife Yusra, but he and his family moved to Dearborn, Michigan, and he's still working in construction. The family that's having the hardest time, well, the, the people that are having the hardest time are really Iman and her husband, because they are still pending, so nothing has changed. Her husband's still finishing up his recertification in dentistry, and she is still working at Hopkins. But um, her girls are often, girls are great. They're yes. often doing their thing. Yeah, And Batul's and getting married <laughs> and moving to Michigan. Well, um, it's a very beautiful movie. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Alexander. Thank you for having Thank me. you, everybody. It's great. Thanks for coming out on this rainy night. Thanks again to Alexandra for coming to talk about This Is Home, just one of the several outstanding DuPont winners this year. And as we said at the top, we are now open for 2020 submissions, so enter your best work today. 
We're looking to any number of platforms, as you said earlier, traditional ones, but more recent ads. That means network, local TV stations, documentaries that have been seen for the first time in our time frame, either on the air or in a festival or theater, online audio and video, print-first publications that also have audio and video. And what are our time frames? Our time frame is from the middle of last year and up until the middle of this year. So July 1 of 2018 up until June 30th of 2019. It's a middle of the year thing here at DuPont. Great. Also, just a note, it's the end of our academic year here at Columbia. So this marks our last episode of season eight, if you can believe it. <laughs> but we'll be back next month with our summer series as we approach our 50th episode of the On Assignment podcast. Good Lord. Seems like just yesterday. Um, this episode of On Assignment was brought to you with the support of the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and Columbia Journalism School. Our producer is J-School grad Sarah Wyman with the support of our lovely and talented prizes coordinator, Lauren Marigildo Santos. Thank you, Lauren. And additional support from our DuPont fellows, Christina Shaman and Sarah Jenks, who we will be saying goodbye to in the next few days, which I can't believe. I know. It's a heartbreaker. They're fabulous. The pages of the calendar are flying by. <laughs> our sound engineer was AJ Mangone, and our music is by Dylan Nowick. Follow us on Twitter at DuPont Awards and visit us online at onassignmentpodcast.com. Until next time. <laughs>